I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. On the world with the creatures that I'm interested in, there are many other kinds of creatures, of course. The others communicate with members of their species in a range of ways, but the creatures, the ones I like, have so many elaborate forms of communication. Perhaps the most important one they have employs acoustic waves. They produce the waves with one element of their physical structure and detect them with another. They ascribe meaning to particular kinds of vibrations. And they're all constantly changing. They create and repurpose elements of this system all the time, especially the younger creatures. There's a lot of confusion. They struggle at times. It causes problems for them. But it's one of the very best methods they've ever created. It allows them to understand the experience of another. It's very powerful for them, and they would be lost without it. There's such a sort of strange and interesting like Venn diagram overlap of the stuff that I I write about and what you write about. Yes. And I feel like there's this element of language that kind of serves as not just like a one person coming of age ritual, which there are many, but almost like a coming of age ritual for millions of people at the same time. Today, my guest is linguist and author Amanda Montel. Um, Can we talk about slang and like what it feels like when you're a kid to like get a little identity, a little power in having your own secret language. We often fail to stop and notice its material power to communicate identity, to establish a sort of us versus them. There are these divisions between generations and the moment someone uses like a regionalism or a generationalism, you can sort of clock things about them that you can't necessarily see or that they're not explicitly telling you. Um, And so you can learn a lot about how old someone is or what someone's background identity is, et cetera, based on the way that they use slang. Um, Even though junior high and middle school is not slang, it serves the same purpose. So I came of age, uh, my sort of like loss of innocence was in the like early to mid 2000s. I was born in 1992. And I remember the pressure very early in life, you know, ages maybe 10, 11, 12, to use language in a way that established you as cool. And as sort of like having this laid back solidarity with the others in your age group. I mean, the very, very first example I can recall of language serving the purpose of establishing an us and a them was when I learned pig Latin on the playground. I was even younger. Wow. What a perfect example. Do you feel like that influenced the the path that you took in your life in some way. I mean, it's totally the chicken or the egg because I always recall being like really, really sensitive to language. Like it's just always been absolutely fascinating to me. Dialects, uh, foreign languages, the sort of attitude you can convey based on word choice. Like I I got a thesaurus for my birthday when I was 10 and I was, it cracked my world open. I was just like, that is, that was truly my coming of age. So there's like that freedom and that, that idea that you can express yourself outside of the confines of something, which like is really so much of what coming of age is, is like this, all of a sudden you exist in this larger place. And that thesaurus does weirdly do that. It does that. I mean, I used so many times $10 words completely wrong and embarrassed myself countless times. I quickly learned that there were environments in which speaking in polysyllabic terminology would not do you any favors. And so you had right. to kind of learn to code switch, right? And, um, but yeah, I remember on, on the playground when I was in maybe second grade learning pig Latin and instantly you felt so cool. I mean, it was a sort of form of cult language itself. The access to this special dialect alone created a sense of superiority in us and of them. Right. And, um, and I also remember there was another level because there were people who 
learn to speak gibberish. I don't even know the phonological oh. rules. Like, it's like, to the get, to the get. I don't even know. I'm sure your oh. listeners know how to speak gibberish. I never learned. And so it's like, I was cool enough to speak Pig Latin, but I was not cool enough to speak gibberish. Right, so there was a right, hierarchy. right, right. So when, <laughs> at what age does the like, because this is what I always think about that's so fascinating. It's like each parent and child, like, of course, there are expressions that you don't, you're like, I hear like a, teenager say now I'm 40 and I hear a teenager say now and I'm like I You're don't like, what is I that? can kind of get the context clues but maybe not but I can speak to people who are younger than me by generation and older than me by generation um but like over the course of centuries like I couldn't like really have a conversation with somebody from like 1750 oh my you God. know and you have so no idea. like is it just like the slang becomes standard English a little by little and then you get just further away I mean one of the things that I've always felt so strongly that you write about is that like this idea that there's like air quotes proper English right. is such a fallacy and it's such a product of the moment that you're living in yes. or proper any language but like is it is the change over the centuries just that slang becomes the norm language is always changing. In fact, now it's changing faster than ever because of globalization and the internet, you know, language is just able to spread and morph at this lightning fast clip. And you're right. I mean, what is proper language is a construct and it's an idea that didn't even really exist until London's language standardization mm. process and period, you know, once we got the printing press and once your right. literacy increased and once there was, you know, the ability to be able to print written language, then all of a sudden we needed a standard to print so that everybody could sort of like understand the same written language. And a lot of the grammar rules that we now consider as like stable and unchanging, they, they were literally just chosen by like the, you know, privileged white dudes who were working at London's right. printing presses, which is, you know, the headquarters of that standardization right. in the print and the printing industry. And a lot of them were based on, you know, really confusing Latin grammar rules because there was this romanticization of Latin. You right. know, there's uh, one of the most confusing grammar rules in English that native speakers get wrong all the time is when to use you and me versus you and I. And that's, right. that's based on Latin. Like that's confusing because of Latin. Um, so, yeah, so there's this like totally arbitrary, quote unquote, proper language, but enforcing that prescriptive form of language is kind of kind of futile. It's kind of like, you know, a moot point because yeah. people are going to use language as they do. And the the struggle for meaning is a grassroots movement. The um the linguist Deborah Cameron said that. And so if you want language to change, it, it has to change from the bottom up. You know, like no right. grammar guide, no like lexicographer is going to tell you how to change it. And yeah, whether you whether you use the term like slang or a term like dialect or how whatever terminology you put to it. Yes, language is constantly changing because of everyday speakers. Um, and, you know, very quickly or not, well, very quickly these days, a language form that was once considered totally improper. Now, suddenly oh, yeah. everybody's using it. I mean, and in terms of slang, like we forget like terms like freaking out you know, yeah. freaking out. That's a term that we now consider like totally standard English. Everybody yeah. of all ages uses that. That was 70s era slang. That right. was like, you know, my parents were saying freaking out in the 70s when they were teenagers and yeah. their parents were like, oh, these kids, these yeah. kids in their slang. Yeah. Um, and then, no, it's, I mean, that's so true of almost everything. It's when it's new, we're so scared of it. And like the outrage that, oh, yeah. you know, when a new you know, when they publish the list of the new words that are going to be in the dictionary and like people have like, people lose their mind, especially because of who is innovating with language yes, and our, our, you know, our curmudgeonliness about language change so often has to do with the people who are spearheading that as opposed mm -hmm. to the language itself. So, you know, linguists have found time and time again that our languages, linguistic innovators are always young oftentimes black women like yes. living in cities like if you want to yes. know what language is going to sound like in 20 years listen to their speech yes. um yes. and you know these are people that <laughs> our culture historically has wanted to keep from power um yes. and so whenever like a quote-unquote new style of language comes up maybe it's not even new but whenever you know young women start to speak in a way that we find deviant of course we have a special microscope on their speech because right. they don't have default power in this culture but whenever 
whenever they do start to speak in a way that we find deviant, we we get really upset. Also because it it signifies that the grounds of linguistic change are quaking beneath us. And that shows oh. that a new generation is rising up and claiming their power. And we're so afraid of change about everything. And in the, that change specifically, the underlying message is like, you are dying. Like, yes. you, it's like it makes me think of like, there's in the Simpsons, there's this moment where the grandpa says, I used to be with it and then they changed what it was. Yes! And I think about that all the it's time. Like so it's true. just like so true. And it's like the I mean, it's really about mortality, which like, you know, it everything. Is. It's about mortality. Yes. <laughs> What's interesting too is that my understanding of what slang terms stick and what yes. slang terms revolve away is when and the, feel like so dated. Like if you're doing a sketch that takes place in a certain decade, yeah. the stuff that you use as a punchline versus the stuff that just becomes yes. English. Well, what you, makes the difference? That's a great question. And my understanding comes from the work of Gretchen McCulloch, who wrote a book called Because Internet. The words that stick around are the words that fill a lexical gap. So language is amazing. Like collectively language is is really good at doing its thing regardless of like what some higher up on a throne thinks is correct so like let's use an example from the 70s the reason why no one says groovy anymore is the same reason why nobody really says like on fleek anymore like that already feels passe because those are kind of just synonyms for like good or cool and yes. we had a word for that already. It's it's good yes. and it's cool, you know. Yes. Like and, and they're so, working just fine. And they're working just fine. <laughs> there are terms that really fill a lexical gap and really serve a purpose that before went unspoken or unnamed. And one example that comes to mind for me is mansplain. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like that was this just brilliant portmanteau, a portmanteau for those unfamiliar is a a sort of hybrid of two words like brunch or frenemy, not to be confused with a pun. Um, So uh, mansplain like really put a label to this experience that so many people had known. And, and for that reason, like now it's really like, now you can basically insert identity here, splain anything. And it was just so useful. Freaking out was another one that filled a lexical gap. I mean, we really did not have a phrase that conveyed the essence of freaking out before freaking out. And so it stuck around. It took a seat at the table of everyday English. Okay, so a word that I want to mention is one term that I really remember driving a generational rift between me and definitely my dad more than my mom. Um, and I think there are some gender dynamics there. I love my dad. I, you know, I yes. worship my dad, you know, you know. Yes, I know from your books. I know, I know you do. And yes. you know, it's but, like nerdy but, dads but, and their daughters. Yes. So the yes. So um, I remember in the early to mid 2000s, the word chill and chillax oh. became oh. like, very big. Like, I don't know what media it was. I don't know what I watched, but I was always telling my dad to chill and to chillax. Like, (laughs) I mean, that was kind of like what people were saying at that time. I feel like also that's something like, well, what would be the pre, like the prior version of that? I guess relax, just relax, dad. Yeah. Relax. I mean, but that sounds more like you're, you would like him to go to a spa. (laughs) Chill is like, calm down. And it's funny because women are always being told to calm down. I feel like, but chill is like sort of a different dynamic, you know, it is, it was sort of the, it was the early to mid two thousands, explicitly gender neutral way yes. of saying like you're being hysterical right. <laughs> you know right. um, no I mean I can't I gotta say I can see this from both sides I have a five-year-old yeah, no, and I feel like if she said that I would like could feel my blood pressure going up oh I um, would I would be super pissed as well in in word slut there's a chapter in there called women didn't ruin the English language they like invented it and it's sort of going to bat empirically for a lot of the speech qualities that have been noticed and revived 
wild in the speech of young women, like saying like every other word. And I using... have to tell you that I really felt so seen and like justified <laughs> with the like stuff because it is so useful and it's not just a placeholder and you write about it beautifully. And like, Thanks. I really, that meant a lot because I do use that and I text, I use it in text and I do think there's something really value it's so useful useful. the example you give of like I I mean I have a theory that like when you're walking down the street and you hear someone yelling really animatedly into the phone and you're like whoa like what's going on there 90% of the time it was preceded by I was like yes but I wanted to say you're not it's not the actual argument it's the later rehashing of what they wanted to say and it's amazing this is called the quotative like and it allows you to convey an interaction that you had without having to quote it verbatim and it is so useful I mean as I explained with like why some slang sticks around and why some doesn't it's like language is so smart like collectively language is so smart and language is never there for no reason but when it's coming out of the mouth of a young woman, we think like, oh, that's just insecurity or vapidness. First of all, there are six different forms of the word like. They are all super useful. They're all homonyms. They are not just the same word over and over again. They are not just useless filler. Vocal fry is there for a reason. It's not just young women who use it. Upspeak, where you end a declarative sentence in the upward intonation of a question. That's there for a reason. And vocal yes. fry for those who can't immediately envision it, it's it's um it's when your vocal folds are in this position and you kind of sound like a creaking door. In in linguistics, it's called creaky voice. And actually, there are some languages where you need vocal fry in order to yes. pronounce a word correctly. It's a part of yes. the phonology. Yes. Yes. Okay. So how does it happen pre-internet, let's say? Because let's say when I was a kid. How does slang spread among adolescents all over the country? Slang proliferates for a number of different reasons. I mean, first of all, it, movies and songs. Um, uh, you know, we have a lot of Black recording artists to thank yeah. for, for yeah. the invention and spread of so many fantastic slang words from the use of bad to mean good mm-hmm. to fat spelled like P-H-A-T to yeah. woke. I mean... So, so many of the terms that we think of now as maybe even being internet slang or really, you know, African-American vernacular English. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think like just through communities as well, like travel, I mean, the, the history of the English language is so fascinating because it's not like this boring story of grammar. It is such a rich, dramatic history full of like travel and migrations and war and violence and like the main events in the story of the life of English are like really bloody actually um and they have these epic names like the great vowel shift (laughs) like it's just it's amazing A contronym is when a word can be used to mean its literal meaning or its opposite. In fact, the word literally itself yes. is a contronym because oh. it can be used to be mean, it can, it can be used to be literally or figuratively. That I have to say, and I'm just gonna sound like I'm a million years old. I gotta say <laughs> that one does kind of bother me because the word figuratively is available. The dictionary literally does yeah. approve of this meaning. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, and and I like it because for me, it, it, it tracks with this general uh, emergence of sort of hyperbole in speech. Yeah. I'm oh, literally yeah. dying, yeah. et cetera. I'm dead. I'm, like, or just, I'm yeah. dead. I mean, um, see, that I like. I like that. I just, I guess I like just like mortality stuff. Um, Okay, so like, as a generation comes of age from childhood to adolescence to being teenagers, is it like this huge collective rite of passage when they get their own slang? And then what happens when like, I mean, my dad would say, you know, that you can tell that a slang phrase is no longer in vogue when they start using it in commercials. Oh, and totally. Like, and what is the life cycle of a slang word? And what does it mean to a generation? 
I would argue that the identity of a generation really starts to come together because of the language and the slang in particular, because our experiences are all so incredibly different. But when we have these terms that we can almost use as a can't slang. So a can't is a sort of dialect that's almost used explicitly to shut out or deceive outsiders. And can't slangs are um are not specific to generations. Like there are all kinds of sort of marginalized communities that have used them. I talk about one in Wordslap called Polari, which was a canceling that was used by gay men in England in like the early to mid 20th century, late, late 19th century. And so when, you know, you could, you could be, you could be anywhere in a region. And when someone would speak Polari to you, you'd be like, oh, we're, we're, we connect in this one way. Like we are defined by this one identity, even though we all come from completely different backgrounds, like we are united by this. There's something about um, outsiders coming to use that terminology that really kills it but like white middle-aged men have it. And by the way, that community is the least innovative with language. Linguists have described that non-white middle-aged men. Yes. Not they're called non-mobile older rural men and they're called norms. That's the acronym. Oh my God. Really good. it's It's perfect. So when the norms start to learn the slang of the generation. It's it's time to innovate. But yeah, I really I really do think it's ser- the slang serves as this connective tissue. Like it allows a generation to really st- establish its identity. I mean, a lot of slang is really explicit, right? Like a yeah. lot of slang has these really like violent and or sexual undertones. I mean, I talk in Wordslet a little bit about um, genitalia naming slang and the slang that we used to talk about sex. And, you know, a lot of our culture's absolute worst attitudes about what sex is, what it should be, are encoded in the slang terms that we have for penises and vulvas, like genitalia in general. Like, you know, sex is always portrayed as some kind of violence, like boning, drilling, screw and like a penis is a weapon and a vagina is just a place to put a penis and it's ugly like all and I I mean I remember learning some of that slang as a very very young person and having it truly shape my like sexual Mm. coming of age um in a way that like I (laughs) kind of resent I do remember the um first time I heard the word douche as an insult and I um and I remember (laughs) that is something that has become very very normal to the point where I have sort of in my brain completely separated it from the like drugstore item. It's which which like, nobody should be using, which nobody right, should be using. Right, 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 totally, which I is mean, not I'm, good for you. like telling my my mom when I was in like second grade after I first heard this term that she was a douche like I remember like testing it out that's what you do that's what you do you test it out this is a coming of age process too when you like start experimenting with you know what reactions you're gonna get with language when you're a little kid you like you you start using this slang like on the people closest to you to see like if it's okay or not my mom was like do you know what a douche is? That, is? that is so hilarious. I love that so much. I did not expect this episode to devolve into talking about douche. <laughs> why do we need it? Like, why does like a, a generation need its own slang? We need slang in order to like describe our experiences. No one can tell us what our experiences are. We need to define them on our own terms. So like another slang term that, you know, came up in the last few years that filled a lexical gap was Karen, you know, how many conversations would have been limited if we didn't have Karen, which is obviously another term that came from African-American English, but like we we need slang to describe experiences and phenomena that any lexicographer or grammarian in an office somewhere could not come up with. I do actually think that the system works, but of course I have 
terms that I'm like partial to and I kind of want to revive them. Are you trying um, to make fetch happen? I mean, I, yeah, in a sense, in a sense, in a sense. Okay. I mean, I just, I just love so much 70s slang. I mean, this is my mm. affinity for the 70s in general. Why I wrote a book about cults. Uh, yes. <laughs> I just like love that era. I mean, you feel like the 70s was like the golden age of slang. For me, I I do romanticize that era in so many ways, like the aesthetics and the slang. I mean, I love Far Out. I love Groovy. Well, actually, there is so much 70s slang that really has stuck around. Like, don't be such a spaz. Spaz mm. is Which 70s. just recently, I feel like is now that is able to yeah. like that. I feel like that's the thing, too, is it's not just totally. the, what we can welcome in, but what we can agree. Welcome that, out. The, yeah, <laughs> that is also like just as loaded and just as stressful for people who are afraid of change is just this idea that there are also words that like once we really examine the etymology and really understand how powerful words are and that if that power is you know used unwisely some words evoke things that are very negative and a problem it's like the idea that we can also let go of some of the things that we can do without I think is the other side of the discomfort with change that's right that is so much of like the outrage around language. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I often encounter people who feel like changing their language on purpose is going to be too hard. But if your language doesn't reflect your actual beliefs, then it is easier than you might think to cycle it out. Like I, I never address a group of people as, Hey guys, anymore. I never do. I really struggle with that one. I I know. So that's actually eighties era slang. That's as recent as, Hey guys, we think that's been around forever. It has not. And a lot of feminists, activists and linguists in the eighties were like really shocked when that Mm. came up because we had just gone through the second wave feminist movement. Now we're saying flight attendant instead of stewardess. Now we're saying server instead of waitress. You know, we have just made so many strides in terms of gender neutral language. And now we're referring to everybody as, Hey guys, it was like really this shock. And, and I, I mean, I just think there are so many fantastic alternatives. I, I, I say y'all, I mean, it's just an invitation to think like does my language really really reflect what I feel and think about the world well this is actually brings us to something that I've been struggling with for years and I've been starting to write about I am secular that's what I write about but like every single day of my life a hundred times I say oh my god yeah (laughs) what do I do what do I say something that that doesn't make me sound like I am like what am I gonna be like Charles H. Darwin, my goodness. Like, what am I going to do? Isn't that really blasphemous of you anyways? Yes. Well, this is what I've been. It's like this weird paradox where it's like, I should be talking like someone who is very devoutly monotheistic because, (laughs) right? It's like, it's like, it's, you go so far in one direction that you come out the other side. I mean, this is maybe a totally different conversation that we have to have. No, no, I'm really interested in this. And I'm so glad to be talking with you about it. I mean, the way that I feel, because I'm with you, like I'm an atheist, culturally Jewish, but I I don't feel the need to eradicate, oh my God, from my vocabulary, just because I don't like have a relationship with any type of God. What about Jesus fucking Christ? What do we do with (laughs) that one? Is that okay? I love that as well. I love that as well. I mean, in a way, it's a type of code switching, right? It's like we're switch, we're code switching to the language of Protestant America. I used to have a friend who would say, oh, my goddess. And I actually I started saying that for a while and then it felt a little contrived. It's yeah, also tough because <laughs> it's also tough because God is this single syllable plosive type of swear yeah. sounding word that we really like. So it's just super satisfying to say. I mean, I'm not going to die on the hill of coming up with a like no. atheistic alternative for oh, my God. Uh, oh, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, I really, I really believe in gender equality. So I'm not going to say, Hey guys, and I'm not going to use the word slut as a, uh, an abusive slur, but, but but as a compliment, but I do not believe in God. And so I'm just going to go ahead and keep saying that. Okay. Okay. Good. Listen to me though. I'm like, my first instinct is like, no, I'm not changing my language. Like how hypocritical is that? 
this idea that we like fetishize things being eternal, that that's yes. like somehow the only way that they're okay versus like that it's just this was the time period when this wonderful thing happened and nothing is eternal. Everything is finite. And so we just have to be delighted in some way. I mean, we can be heartbroken too, but delighted in some way that like there was a time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And to bring it back, it's like every, everything is finite. Everything has a lifespan, including language. (laughs) Yeah. My next guest is Dr. Sanja Lanehart, a professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona. What do you wish people better understood about how language evolves and changes? The fact that it does. Mm. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who would like their version of language to sort of stand still, that they feel like there is this true thing. So, right, so someone who works in sociolinguistics and history of the English language and those sorts of things and understanding issues around etymology, um, you know, sort of this word history, right? There's always been this, this, uh, this constant debate over what, what words mean. And so mm-hmm. there are those people who think, well, words mean whatever they originally meant when they were first created without understanding that language changes. And so you get people who are connected to certain ideas about these meanings, and they don't want to really be open to the fact, well, that's just not how that works anymore, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, and so if we get people to understand that, that is one of my, uh, that's like a linguistic mantra, right? That language changes. Right. And so if we right. can get people to understand that, then I think we'd be in a much better shape when it comes around some of these ideas about not just norms, but in particular, this idea about standard standardization. Yeah. English has a very interesting history in the sense that it's, it's sort of a mutt. Uh, it, has inf- it has a large Greek and Latin influence, Norman French influence, right? Uh, and a, and mm. a plethora of other languages. And so one of the things that you see this happen in is something like words that have these Greek and Latin origins. You know, should you say syllabuses or is it syllabi? Right. Or is it right. octopuses Octopi. or octopi, yes. right? Like, yes. And so people will, you know, fall on their sword to say that it is only this way and just this way and yeah. that's it. And it's like, no, that's just not how, that's just not how that works at all. Right. It, it just kind of depends. One of the things that I've wondered really all my life is how does slang spread, like especially in a pre-mass media world, let alone a pre-social media world, how does it happen? I can distinctly remember moments of like seeing a like turn a phrase in a movie and thinking, oh, I thought only in my high school did we say that, you know, <laughs> how does it happen that... Um, that things catch on. So I, I've had that experience where I can almost pinpoint when I heard something for the first time, like, mm. and then it just becomes this huge thing. So the experience that I recall is the expression, my bad. Yes. So when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Texas at Austin in the late 80s, I had a professor tell me about this expression, and I had never heard it. Sometime in the late 90s, when I was pressed at the University of Georgia, I started hearing this all the time. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait a minute, who created this? Yeah. Like, how? Okay, so this is obviously pre-social media. And I'm like, how did we get from, I've never heard of this, to within a few years, I hear this all the time? Yeah. I have no idea how that happened other than to say that because language is this social construct, right? People interact. And so what makes something comprehensible to one person, right, has to be comprehensible to another person in order for there to be any level of understanding and communication. So somebody creates this thing, somebody hears it, and they like it, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with the book Frendel. It is one of my favorite books, and it illustrates this so nicely. So Frendel is a made-up word, like all words, 
Yes, like and all in words. This book, all words are made up. That's one of the first things my son learned and throws back at me. Um, <laughs> but in this book, this student decides to create a new word, and he creates a word "friendle," and he just starts using it. And you know, when you use something that people don't know, they say, "Oh, well, what's that mean?" Yeah. And then he tells them what it means. And they're like, oh, okay. I kind of like that. And then they start using it until everybody's using friendle as the word. Right. We do that all the time. Yeah. So what determines like how, right. So people are making up expressions and words and turns of phrase and repurposing words to mean other things. And sometimes it catches on so much that within a generation it becomes totally standard and we forget that it's slang and sometimes it gets completely forgotten. What do you think determines which is which? I think part of it is about age and generation. Uh, I think part of it has to do with how temporary a particular situation might be that a word is used, uh, but also then how common. So for example, uh, words, slang words that are used for money or yeah. slang words that are used for drugs, right? So yeah. within cultures that are using that, there's a lot of turnover, right? There's a lot of change in part because some, in some cases you don't want certain people to right. know that that's what you're talking about, but you want Evasion is the point. to know. Yes. Right. Yes. So that happens for certain things. Other things are sort of um, just sort of in the moment referring to something. So, you know, one of the words that I'm thinking of that's become that's that's that would be, I think, considered slang now would be Stan. Right. Yeah. So Stan has become something that people use. I stand whoever or whatever. Right. Um, and but it's a very um, it's it's a very context specific type of thing. Right. And it's also a very uh, youth, much more youth oriented. Like I would yeah. never expect my mom to use that word. Oh, it's say, it's oh, I'm a total stand for Angela Lansbury or something. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not going to happen, right? Is the etymology of Stan from the Eminem song about the extreme fan who yes, stalks him? That is. Yes, that is one of the connections for that particular word. And the only reason I know that, because I didn't know that before that, because I hadn't heard that particular Eminem song until this came out, was I'm a member of the American Dialect Society. And one of the things yeah. that we do is vote on words of the year every year. So I remember the discussion about Stan. That's so interesting because I feel like Stan, like that song is very much, my, I'm 40, and that song was like very much my age when it, you know, I, I feel like that's a song of my generation. And I think that, mm -hmm. but the people who are saying Stan referring to it are much younger than I am. And I think that that's really interesting that it it was a cultural moment and then it, it took a, another decade or two to catch on um, as a as a word, as an idea, as something that has a life of its own for people who maybe have never heard that song or have no idea who Eminem is. So much of what you're saying about language, about the way it changes, about how resistant people are to change, and about how sometimes there are multiple true and right answers that seem in conflict but are not. I mean, it, it relates to virtually every other part of human experience. Why is it so sometimes unsatisfying when we go to look something up? Let's say you're having a, you know, debate with your partner. Is this correct or that's correct? And you go look it up and it's like both answers are okay. And even if you're, even if you're right, it's somehow you're like, but I need to know like which one is yeah. more correct. And there's yes. something about that that we crave. Well, I grew up with the, well, if it's not in the dictionary, it's not real. Mm. A friend posted a clip of something from, I think it was from a talk show. And it was this one person who I don't even know who she was. Um, the host had, had used the word, uh, I think it was snuck. And she said, you know, you, you should know better. You're Harvard educated. That's not a word. <gasps> and so they looked it up in the dictionary. I want to say it was Conan. He, he looked it up in the dictionary on the show and it's like, it's right there. It says what yeah. I said it was, how I used it was okay, right? It's, it's correct, yeah. right? 
as I became what I became, then I understood it's like clearly people don't understand how dictionaries work or how they function, how they're made, the history of them, because that's just not how that works at all either, right? Uh, Dictionaries, complex process, dictionaries lag behind, especially before sort of this digitization, right, of Mm. how things can exist. And so they have tended to lag behind actual language as it's actually spoken. Right. So for new words to come into the dictionary, the process was much slower, but that didn't mean that those words didn't exist. It just replicated the lag that existed in the production of a dictionary. So now with more online resources, we can have a closer uh, connection with that, but there is still a process and there's still a lag in how that works. So that whole idea of, I need this authoritative reference Mm -hmm. to tell me that it's okay. And then I can believe what you're saying. Since we're talking about slang and I do this in all of my classes, especially when I'm teaching uh, language use in African American communities, which is this notion that slang equals language, as opposed to the idea that slang has only to do with vocabulary in certain times in, in phrases, that slang is not a language. And so for what I study, a lot of people come in and just say, oh, well, African-American language is slang. That just, you know, that that's a does not equal, not possible sort right. of thing, because a language right. is not slang. But there is slang in every language, regardless right. of the varieties. Right. Well, that, and that's a, such an interesting point, too, in terms of the things that, you know, we have this idea, we're so intimately aware of our own language and the nuances, and to extrapolate that to every language that's ever been spoken, you know, it had to change, it had to evolve, whatever the earliest forms of language were, somebody was changing it along the way, there was some expression no one ever heard before. We see ourselves as this new changing different thing. And and everyone who came before us as this set formed ideal. I think the only person I can think of that we don't do that with is Shakespeare. People like to credit Shakespeare with the creation of a lot of these things. Although I'm, I'm, skeptical about that. I'm skeptical I, in the sense that I see Shakespeare as recording lots of things, but not necessarily that Shakespeare is the one who created those particular things. Right. But either way, right, this idea that he did that seems to be acceptable. And, you know, there's a whole scholarship just around Shakespeare and, and his language. He gets a lot of credit. We'll put it that way. He um, sure does. And so, yeah, that context seems to be okay. But the idea of, um, you know, they, they also, the of, of looking just at English, right? So in the history of the English language, what English looked like in, you know, 449 is very different than what it looked like in, um, say, 1083 or 1462 yeah. and in 2020, right? We couldn't, yeah. most people could not understand, I don't think anybody other than scholars, would be able yeah. to look at an old English text and say, oh, yeah, I understand what this is saying, right? Does no. that mean that old English? So, but you have people who are like, well, old English then, if that's, if you take that logic, like old English is the real English. Like this stuff right. we're doing now is just made up, not very good stuff. But that old English thing is like the really <laughs> good thing. Like, you know, what kind of sense does that make? No, it's so interesting that sort of idealization of some lost world that is invented. And I think the flip side of that is the demonization of language changing. I mean, what do you think people don't understand about the way marginalized communities, especially black culture, becomes mainstream, the way it's appropriated? Black language is fine as long as black people aren't using it. So it gets Mm. used, right? We see this, um, you know, when I first started thinking about this and looking about this, and it's probably been 20 years ago, uh, if not even more, the idea of appropriation, I think, was just a little bit different than what we have right now. So we can talk about appropriation as people wanting to look cool and smart or whatever, but the the monetization of this is mm-hmm. just grown tremendously, right? And so things that are created within Black language and Black culture are now getting represented and are now getting profited on in not by the not by the people who actually created or use this, but by you know big business um, uh, movies, corporations, right? We can't go through most advertising 
that we see without there being some aspects of black language and culture as a part of that advertising to sell that. Um, Look at who the musicians are that we have these cultural references to, right? Um, They're within this realm of talking about uh, black music, whether it's hip hop and, and especially hip hop, right? But where we get sort of this, this level of creativity, right? Which was why they why black um, performers and creators did strikes, right? Along right. TikTok and other uh, platforms because all of this content is there, but who makes the money off of the content aren't the actual people who created the content. But so it's right. big money, it's big business. It's cool to say that as long as you're not black in a space where that it would actually allow you to profit from. What do we do about this problem in American culture? What is the best pathway forward? Oh my goodness, if I knew that, then it would be solved. It would be done already. <laughs> I don't know that we have, I mean, that the history behind that is just embedded in our sociocultural and historical context of this country, right? Um, black people aren't supposed to own anything. Black people aren't supposed to be smart. Black people aren't supposed to be a lot of things, right? We're not supposed to imagine. We're not supposed to be curious, right? So we aren't supposed to even be able to have something that's worthy of taking. Because, and and even if we do create something, it's not supposed to be our own. It's owned Mm. by someone else. And so that is embedded in this nation. And so I don't know how you can circumvent that other than, you know, you're not going to circumvent it, but you certainly can continue to challenge it and say, well, this isn't true. This is, this person should get credit, right? We're seeing these uncoverings of history, right? Where people are getting credit. So what is the future of the English language? How do you see in a hundred years, how do you imagine that the English language will have changed? That's so funny. I, when I taught history of the English language, that was always one of the questions uh, that they had for the class as a final sort of project was, what's your prognostication <laughs> for what this is going to look like in X number of years? Um, and I have been around long enough to know that You should not listen to anything anyone says about what English language is going to look like at any particular time, because we just don't know. The one thing that we might be able to say is there may be a further disconnection between the words you see on a page and how people are actually speaking. So much so in the same way that, for example, in China, China likes to say it's one language, right? We have one language, many dialects, but that's not true, at least not in linguistic concept of languages, right? Languages have to be uh, mutually um, comprehensive to, to the speakers. Right. That's not the case for China. So China, China actually has multiple languages. What ties them together is they have a script that you can all, all read because of the script. And so I'd have to sort of think, can that happen to English? We all have a script and we can read it, but what people are actually saying is just so different that how comprehensible will it be in 200 years or what are 100 years? Wow. Um, What do you think sets the English language apart from other languages, if anything? Is there anything about the English language that is unique? It has so much input, right? So we talk about borrowing. Right. You know, you don't borrow and give it back. It just becomes part of your language. Uh, And English has borrowed from so many languages. It's one of the things that makes English difficult to learn if it's not your native language, uh, because, you know, you can talk about these etymologies, these these language, these word histories. But you're looking at all these different histories. You know, we have words from Hebrew and Persian and, you know, Latin, French, Greek, Spanish. We have native languages. We have all of these places that these words have come from that Mm. become a part of our language. It makes 
English, uh, sort of a unique space within uh, the world. And part of that too is because English has has grown to become this global language where many countries have English as one of its uh, official languages or uh, it's taught in schools as, you know, this needs to be a second language that you have or so forth. And now when we look at English across the world, we see a variety of types of Englishes that we call English, but I always wonder how mutually intelligible those Englishes are if you talk about Indian English or you know, Nigerian English or what have you, right? There are all of these spaces. Yeah. Wow. Well, that makes me like English a lot more. Um, that is so, <laughs> such a collection of words and ideas from around the world. Oh, so the, the, the many different Englishes makes me think of something I have to tell you, which is for many years, I've had an idea for a game show, which is you get two teams of people, so some but who are all native English speakers, but one, let's say, from like the highlands of Scotland and on a team with somebody from like, you know, Lagos, let's say, and then somebody who's like from like, you know, Kentucky on a team with someone from like the Australian Outback or something. And both teams, one person has the instructions for a piece of Ikea furniture and the other person has all the pieces <laughs> and they can't see each other, but they can communicate verbally and whoever oh, can get the dresser or whatever yes, made first wins. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I am making random sounds out of my face. They are arbitrary, but you understand what I'm trying to tell you. You know what I mean, because we humans are such good pattern recognizers. We ascribe meaning to sounds. The sounds and their meanings are constantly changing, like everything else little nuances, the smallest suggestion of tone and context are loaded with significance. And somehow we manage, more or less, to keep up with one another. Sure, there are misunderstandings every single day, vast gaps between regions and generations, but we find a way, by and large, within a shared language with mere sound waves to exchange the ideas and experiences that take place inside our minds. And the more words we have, the more we allow our language to evolve, the more deeply we might be able to understand one another. Something to think about the next time you hear a tween say some new lingo you never heard before. Thank you so much to my guest today, Amanda Montel, who is the author of Cultish and Word Slut, two books I love, and the host of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult. And thank you so much to Dr. Sanja Lanehart, professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona. Join me next time when my guest will be actor Troy and Belisario. Definitely the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. So far, our baby's life, but maybe she'll have crazier experiences. Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. And subscribe to Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs. <laughs>